Let us now turn to the word of God, to the portion of God's word read, the book of the Revelation, chapter 8, where we continue to consider the developments as the great king of Zion executes his own decrees and fulfills his own sovereign purpose in the redemption of his people and his church. For those of you who are visiting with us as a congregation, we are progressing slowly through the book of the Revelation. And as we've stressed from the very beginning, it is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, if we overlook that point, then we do not have the proper key for opening the content of this book. It is he who is central to everything that happens. He is on the throne. We spend time considering his coronation and his inauguration into his uh, position and office as the king of Zion. And now he is enthroned and functioning as Zion's king and working for the redemption of his people. Last Lord's Day, we concentrated upon the angels and their purpose in the work of redemption. They are sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. That's their purpose. No matter what they are doing, they serve the redeemed church of Jesus Christ. That's their business. And when we come to chapter 8 here, where we see seven angels ready and waiting with seven trumpets, they are to intimate events that are bound up not with the destruction so much as the enemies of Jesus Christ, but for the salvation of his people. Now, as I've said, there are different interpretations of this book. And there is much erroneous teaching around, or supposed teaching, and uh, many very sincere people desiring to understand the scriptures, they become very confused. And of course, part of the reason is because those who attempted uh, interpreting the scriptures do not begin where they ought to. And they do not understand fundamental truths, fundamental facts that we must have firmly fixed in our minds to appreciate what is happening. Now, along with many of the modern interpretations goes this idea that 
Well, the church has moved on, you see, from Old Testament times, and it most certainly has moved on and progressed from the days when the church sang the Psalms, uh, supposedly the Psalms of David. Now, in the two Psalms that we were singing from, and those of you who were here on Wednesday evening, we turn to Psalm 139 in passing to demonstrate how that Psalm is about Christ, the glorious and wonderful operation of the Spirit of God in the womb of the Virgin bringing forth the Son of God by birth in our nature. Now we were singing about the covenant in the first psalm. And uh, we were singing in the second psalm about Jerusalem and the dispersed of Israel. And immediately some come along and say, well, we're not singing any more about Jerusalem. And we are under a completely different authority now. Well, you see, we can't even begin to understand what we're reading here in chapter 8 or any other chapter in Revelation unless we go back and understand the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament and the unity and the oneness of the church of Jesus Christ and the unity and the oneness of the covenant and the relationship between the types and the antitypes. The early church, because of developments it had never experienced before, and the apostles feared with developments that they'd never, ever had to uh, uh, deal with before. How did they do it? How did they face up to the new developing situations? Well, we go back to the Acts of the Apostles and see just exactly what their attitude to things were and the developments under God that was taking place at that time, the first century in the New Testament church. And in Acts chapter 15, here's uh, the words, the thinking of Peter himself, but obviously in the context uh, others in the great council at Jerusalem. Remember what they're dealing with, the matter of circumcision as to whether Gentiles coming into the church need to be circumcised. If they are brought under the gospel to be united in the only church that existed, the church of the Jews. There wasn't any other church. And here are Gentiles now coming into it. So what must we do? Should they be circumcised 
like Abraham and his descendants. We read verse 13 of Acts 15, After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. To this agree the words of the prophets. How do we know we're interpreting these events correctly? How do we know that we're understanding that this is the mind of God, that this is really the work of God, that this isn't something spurious or erroneous? How do we know? To this agree the words of the prophets as it is written after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. Well, well. I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up to this agree all the prophets. And of course, uh, the particular prophet uh, that is referred to here is uh, Amos. This is a quotation from Amos, or a paraphrase perhaps from Amos. But this is how the apostles, when they're faced with something that hasn't happened before, something different, a new procedure, this is what they want to know. Is this of God? Is this his doing? Is this his work? Well, how are we going to know? How will we settle the question? We go to the scriptures. We go to the prophets. You go back in the uh, same book of the Acts, and uh, you will see there in chapter 10 that uh, Peter, when he'd gone to the Gentiles, and this was something new, a new development in the life of the church, gone to Cornelius, the Gentiles, with the gospel. What does he say? regarding the one that Christ himself that he presents to Cornelius and his household. Verse 43 of Acts 10. To him give all the prophets witness. To him give all the prophets witness. You can go to any of them. What are they all talking about? Who are they all writing about? They are all writing and witnessing of him that through his name, whosoever Jew or Gentile believeth in him should, uh, shall receive remission of sins. 
Now I draw attention to that point because if we are to understand what is written in Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now Paul tells us it is the revelation of that which had previously been a mystery. So how are we going to understand this revelation? Well, we have to go and see what did the prophets witness? What did the prophets say? What did they witness regarding him and regarding his kingdom, regarding his ministry and offices? What did they say? Now, in the little uh, prophecy of Habakkuk. I believe that the instructions that were given to Habakkuk by the Lord reflect for us what every prophet in reality was doing regarding Christ. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, here's what Habakkuk Writes, the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain or make it clear upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Now, Habakkuk, write out the vision and you don't write it in code. You write it plainly. You write it clearly. And you write it so clearly that he may run that readeth it. He's not standing, scratching his head, wondering, what is this all about? Who's this person he's talking about? Whose kingdom is this that he's writing about? Who is this person? Write it and make it plain that a man upon reading it will run to fulfill it because it clearly states to him what his duty is. Verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. Something for the future. (coughs) Hasn't happened yet, but it will happen the end, it shall speak and not lie. It's absolutely certain. Though it tarry, wait for it. Might take a long time. But you wait. What are you waiting for? What is written plainly? That's what you wait for. The word of God written plainly. It will surely come. It will not tarry. Now I believe that what God said to Habakkuk was true of all the prophets. They weren't writing mystery stories. They were writing plain facts and truths. And though it would take centuries perhaps before they would be fulfilled, they would be fulfilled. Now, how then do we approach what they wrote? 
How do we approach the church in the New Testament? How do we approach the reign, the majestic reign of the glorious, exalted Christ? We mentioned in one of the previous Lord's Days that Christ is now enthroned at God's right hand. He's exalted above every other name, but his throne is his covenant throne. It was promised to him. By an eternal decree, the second psalm we read, he was promised that throne. He was to be enthroned. David had that assurance. Although his family was not as he desired it to be. There were many things in his kingdom that troubled him. Yet he had confidence in this. God hath made a covenant with me. And that covenant is ordered in all things. Every last detail of it is ordered. It's decreed. It cannot possibly feel. It's ordered in all things. And it is sure. So let's go back for a moment to see what God had ordered. To see what he would do. What what the prophets were writing plainly. And we go back to the prophecy of Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. God made a promise Jeremiah is not writing to confuse us. He's writing plainly, just like Habakkuk. And what does God tell the prophet Jeremiah to write to us? That we might read it and understand it. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with whom? With the house of Israel. Now we better understand that. I will make a new covenant. Who am I going to make this new covenant with? Is it the Gentiles? Is it some new body of people? I made a covenant in the past. I'll make a new covenant with a new people. No, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, they know all about covenant. They know about the covenant with Abraham. They know about the covenant that David was talking about. This is nevertheless a new covenant. Here is a change. A new development. For whom? It is for Israel and for Judah. The ancient people of God the generations that have been born since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I am going to make 
a new covenant with them. Now that's one of the great problems. And that's why so many people get onto their hobby horse and onto their high horse and imagine all kinds of ridiculous things about the modern nation of Israel and the modern people, the Jews. What Jeremiah wrote, he wrote plainly. So there's no mystery about it. What else did he say? Verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now you cannot mistake who these people are. It's impossible. There's only one people that he brought, God brought out of Egypt. There's no mistaking it. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord for all, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So here's a people, we can identify them. They came out of Egypt, or their fathers came out of Egypt. And God made a covenant with them. He made a nation out of them. He gave to them the oracles. He made choice of them above every other people in the earth. And now he says, tell them about the future. Tell them, I am going to administer the covenant in a new fashion to them. What else does he say? Jeremiah chapter 23, jumping back a little. In the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, Here's what the prophet again writes plainly. Verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whether I have driven them. What do we find the dispensationists and the premillennialists? What do we find them doing? Ah, that's it. We look at the land of Israel. 1948, 
God was seen to be doing this wonderful thing, reestablishing his ancient people back in their own land. Well, look at what the prophet writes plainly. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whether I have driven them. Now, note those two words, or more than two. I will gather the remnant of my flock, the remnant of my flock, out of all countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Now, to begin with, this cannot be restoration from Babylon. When Nehemiah and Ezra went back to Jerusalem, there was an element of restoration. Where were they gathered from? They weren't gathered out of all nations. They weren't gathered from the ends of the earth. So this has to be something different. Verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. He won't just reign, he will prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice where? In the earth. Now, we won't understand what's happening in Revelation chapter 8 unless we understand this. A king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah sin Kenyu. Here's the one who is the king, Jehovah sin Kenyu. The Lord our righteousness. Who says this? Those to whom that righteousness has been imputed. He's wrought it out through his obedience and it's imputed to them. And what are they saying? We have no righteousness of our own. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But Jehovah sin can you. He's our righteousness. Upon his merits we stand. Upon the basis of his obedience we are justified freely and accepted with God. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, 
that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It progressed beyond those days because of Jehovah's sin can you, the Lord our righteousness. What are they going to be saying? Oh, in the past, God brought our fathers up out of Egypt. But now what are we saying? The Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries, whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. That's God's promise, plain, clear, indisputable. But alongside of it, remembering this, in his days, in during his reign, what is he going to do? This one who is the righteousness of his people, this one who justifies his people, makes them accepted with God, does he just simply reign over his church? What is he going to do? He is going to execute judgment and justice in the earth and the angels at his command will blast the trumpets and an angel will pour out fire of indignation upon the inhabitants of the earth. And when it comes to the... uh, the, uh, Fourth trumpet, when it's sounded, then we hear what we never heard since the beginning of time and what will not be necessary to the end of eternity. Woe, woe, woe. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have such a proclamation. We have holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, emphasizing the immutable, majestic holiness of God. Here are woes pronounced by the one who is the Lord, our righteousness. And he's doing judgment and justice in the earth. And we've already noted how men are seeking to escape from the wrath of the Lamb who's enthroned. He's the Lord, our righteousness, the righteousness of his people. But he will execute judgment and justice in the earth and amongst the inhabitants of that earth. Now, We have also again, we're sticking to Jeremiah just presently, in Jeremiah chapter 18. The Lord our righteousness, what's he going to do? He'll always do judgment and justice. 
And what does he say here that is to be written plainly? Why do men take upon themselves to take God's word and muddle it up and muddy the waters and tell us, oh, you can't, you can't just read that and believe that. There has to be some other interpretation. I believe that God speaks plainly. The word made flesh. The common people heard him gladly because they could understand him. What here do we read in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7? Here's what God says. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I have sought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it if it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice then I will repent of the good wherein I said I would benefit them. What nation, what kingdom did God promise he would benefit and he would bless? One nation, one kingdom always referred to or generally as David's kingdom. The nation of Israel, the kingdom of David. No other nation, no other kingdom had ever the promises of God made to it as this people, this nation. But what does God say? At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then it will forfeit the promised blessings. It will forfeit the promised goodness as here is clear. Now then, when we see God's dealings, through the prophets, his warnings again and again against disobedience, against rebellion, against idolatry, we can expect one thing, God's judgments upon that people. In the prophecy of Ezekiel, in the 22nd chapter of Ezekiel, you have there one who's referred to constantly as the son of 
uh, God in Ezekiel chapter 22. You have there Ezekiel directed as another one of the Lord's prophets, verse 18 of Ezekiel 22. Son of man, the house of Israel is to me become dross. All they are brass and tin and iron and lead in the midst of the furnace. They are even the dross of silver. That is pretty strong language. But it is God's language. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because ye are all become dross, behold, therefore, I will gather you, where? Into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace. See what God's saying? Because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because of your disobedience, you may hang on to the promises and you may be convincing yourselves we're special. God can't turn against us. God can't afflict us. God can't do anything other than just keep his covenant promises. Well, what does God say? I gave you Jerusalem as the city of your solemnities. I give you Jerusalem where you had your great festivities, where your sons with their fathers were to appear before the Lord four times in the year. I give you a meeting place where I would meet with you. Jerusalem was the blessed city as it were amongst all the cities of the world. But in the place where you gather to worship, in the place where you come to the ordinances, in the place where you come where the high priest typifying the great priest goes within the veil to present the blood before me in behalf of the people. That very center of divine God-appointed worship, unique beyond every other city. I will gather you to Jerusalem for another reason. I will... Gather you, he says, they shall gather as they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it, so will I gather you in mine anger and in my fury. 
and I will leave you there and melt you. Yea, I will gather you and blow upon you in the fire of my wrath, and ye shall be melted in the midst thereof, as silver is melted in the midst of the furnace, so shall ye be melted in the midst thereof, and ye shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury upon you. What solemn warnings the prophet is here issuing in the name and by the authority of God. Did God mean it or did he not? Is God speaking the truth or is he just threatening? Is God telling us what he would do or is he just deceiving us? God acts upon the principle Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Whatsoever a people soweth, that they shall reap. The nation that forgets God. The nation that forgets God shall be turned into hell. Now then, Remembering what we were considering, keeping these solemn warnings and prophesyings in mind. Remember what we read, the Savior himself speaking there in the Gospel according to Matthew, just to refresh our minds. There's 43 of Matthew 21. What did Jesus say? Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. You can claim all you want. You can interpret scripture in the Old Testament whatever way you want. But God is faithful to his word. And the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. My, my, that's, that's a mighty word from the Savior. It will be taken from you. You won't possess it anymore. You won't own it. You won't exercise authority in it. It'll be taken from you. You had it in the past. Jesus couldn't speak of take something been taken away unless they previously possessed it. You had the kingdom. You had the promises of the kingdom. You had the rules of the kingdom. And as we looked at in the past, it was appointed by God to be a kingdom of priests. Chosen you among the people to be to me a kingdom of priests. Now we, of course, uh, went to see what Peter had to say under the new covenant. He was speaking to the living stones 
those who were born again from above, who were spiritually alive. And he said, you are the nation. You are the royal priesthood. You are the peculiar people. Not to offer up sacrifices of lambs and bullocks and so on, but to offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. This is the system, the sacrificial system under the new covenant. The sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. But Jesus here says, and the chief priests and the Pharisees heard what Jesus said. They were mighty angry. They thought he's speaking about us. He's telling us that the kingdom is going to be taken from us. We've been ruling. We have such power. We have such authority. We can stir the people up. And we can influence them. To do what? To deny the king his kingdom. What was written in the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But we can influence the people to cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. We deny him his kingdom. We deny him his throne. We deny him his rule. That's what they were saying. What did Jesus say? The day's coming. You'll not dictate who's on the throne. You will not be happy with an imposter like Herod ruling in the throne. The kingdom is going to be taken out of your hands. It's going to be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth fruits thereof. Now, we looked at what Peter said about that nation, that people. But I want you to go with me over to the gospel according to Mark and the <coughs> the uh, chapter 15, just for the sake of time. Jesus is rejected by these people. They've decided, we, what do they say to Pilate? We have no king, but who? Caesar. We have no king, but Caesar. We will not have Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's not the promised one. We have no king but Caesar. We submit to uh, Roman authority. Now, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Fear not, little flock. Yes, there was much to make them afraid. 
But he said, Fear not, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You seek that kingdom. And then he said, Fear not, little flock. What we were reading about earlier, the remnant of the flock. Fear not, little remnant of the flock that has been spared, that has been preserved. The little flock that has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. The little flock that trembles and is weak. Fear not, little flock. Why? For it is the Father's good pleasure to what? To give you the kingdom. The kingdom will be taken away from one party. And it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's the transfer. So whose is the kingdom now? The little flock, the little remnant. And you go with me. For the sake of time, we may jump over to the Acts of the Apostles. And there you have the beginning of the developments. The king is enthroned. And in Acts chapter uh, one, we read of the little flock, the remnant of the little flock. These are not Gentiles. These are not Babylonians. These are Jews. Verse 15 in Acts 1, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. You go back to the mighty masses, the numbers that came out of Egypt. And you see the numbering of the tribes. You see the numbers as the Various tribes were to go marching in order. The book of Numbers, why is it there? People would say, well, a book of Numbers, how do you expect to find the gospel in a book of Numbers? What is the book of Numbers? How does that relate to the gospel, to the redemption of the people of God. Well, if there was nothing else, and of course there's much more. But when we come here to Jerusalem, centuries after David was enthroned, centuries after Solomon built that great monument to the glory of God, All this time later, 120 out of the thousands of Israel. 120, you go back, 
Sorry, we're jumping around. Go back to Luke and the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel. And there you see uh, there is mention of this little remnant. And uh, first of all, in chapter 1, you have the father, Zacharias, of John the Baptist. And he spoke, and this is what he says in verse 68 of Luke 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zacharias doesn't doubt for one moment what the prophets have been telling us, what Jeremiah was telling us, what Habakkuk was telling us, what Amos was telling us, what Ezekiel was telling us, what David was telling us. It has come to pass. And what does he say? Verse 72 is the purpose of this, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, which oath, the the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. Abraham, Jesus said, saw my day, and he rejoiced. He could see a way by faith down the corridors of time. And he could see a glorious day yet to come. And he could understand these promises will never be truly fulfilled until the seed of the covenant appears. Until Messiah comes, the great deliverer, the oath which he swore to Abraham. Why is it now being fulfilled? Well, you go over to chapter 2 of uh, Luke and you see there that old uh, saint of God, uh, Simeon. We're told in verse 26 of Luke 2, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah, the promised one, the seed of the covenant. He was assured he was going to see him and he'd be a witness. He came by the Spirit into the temple. And what does he say when he sees this little babe in the arms of his father? Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. The promised salvation. The Savior is now come. What was he doing? Verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what was the consolation of Israel? They didn't need consolation unless they were afflicted. 
unless they were in deep trouble, unless they were scattered. What's the consolation? It's the promise they're going to be gathered again. It's the promise one will be raised up on the throne of David and one will bring his people around him unto him. Shiloh shall the gathering of the people be. And here is the consolation of Israel. Who? Christ, the Savior. All their consolations are in him. Not in the land that flowed with milk and honey. Not in the throne of David, literally, materially being established again. It's in him. He's the consolation. He's the one who comes to bind up the broken hearts. He's the one who comes to restore the joy of his people. Now you will see that again there were others without mentioning them and they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now whenever the people on that occasion gathered around that one who was the consolation of Israel journeying into Jerusalem, riding in the foal of an ass, as we pointed out earlier, people were rejoicing, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. The consolation of Israel Our sorrows, our afflictions are past. We can rejoice. God who promised Abraham these great things has kept his word. Now the Redeemer is here. We now can rejoice. And a few days later, what are they doing? They are despising him. They are rejecting him. They are crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. They rejected the fountain of joy, the fountain of hope, the consolation. Now if they reject the consolation, what awaits them? Further affliction, further judgments, further expressions of divine wrath against them. But there was this little remnant in the midst of all this. And as we noted there in Acts chapter 1, how small, how very small. And if we didn't have the record of the vastness of the numbers, it wouldn't be so significant how tiny this remnant is. This little remnant. But remember, it's the promised remnant 
of Israel. Go with me to Acts chapter 2, and with this we'll have to conclude. What do we read in verse 5 of Acts 2? There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. You say, well, that's not what you'd expect. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Well, what kind of Jews? Wouldn't it be sufficient to tell us that? No, no. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men. Devout men. You see, the large majority had turned away from God. But these are devout men still devoted to Moses, still devoted to the law, still devoted to the temple, still devoted to the promises. Devout men, where from? Out of every nation under heaven. Now, what do you think you would do If you read this, just you come across a piece of parchment and all you have is the Old Testament, but you come across this piece of parchment and it says, there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. You'd know exactly why this was. God said he was going to gather them. If they were scattered, we just looked at a very few of the promises. But he said, I will gather them from where I've scattered them. And here they are, out of every nation under heaven. And they're all at Jerusalem. And God said he would bring them to Jerusalem. They'll be scattered everywhere, but I will bring them to Jerusalem. What happens We read as Peter preached to them, verse 39, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He's talking about a promise made in the past, God's promise made in the past. And it was that promise that was their consolation. Without that promise, there's no consolation for them. They've sinned. They've offended God. They've provoked his wrath. And he said, I will scatter you. Now he's brought them together to console them to remind them, I have not forsaken you. I have made a covenant. And now I'm going to administer that covenant in a new fashion. But it's a covenant that I told Jeremiah to write to you that I would make it with Israel and with Judah. And here are the 
men who are the Judeans and the Jews and the Israelites. And when Peter preaches to them, without going into all the details, when they heard his words, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Is there any hope for us? Peter's able to say yes. There is hope. You've crucified the king of Zion. You have denied him his right as the king of Zion. And you have cried out, as it were, in the words of the second psalm. The heathen are raging and the people are imagining a vain thing. God has set his king in Zion and he's there to give consolation and redemption. And in verse 41 we read in Acts 2, then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. There's the beginning. There's the consolation of Israel. Here is the beginning of the evidence, as it were, that the glorious king is enthroned. And now Shiloh has come, he's been enthroned, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the remnant of Israel and Judah. Who are these? Jews. They're not Gentiles. They are Jews. They are the remnant of Israel and Judah. And God has kept his covenant word with them. And through them, He's going to bless the nations of the earth. But as he does so, he's going to administer judgment and justice in the earth. And those who are the angels sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation are going to have to pour judgments upon the enemies of Christ and his people. But thus far we must leave it here. May the Lord bless to us his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice in that covenant. Thou art a covenant-keeping God. We would be lost without that covenant. We would perish. There would be no hope for us. Lord God, we rejoice in the blessed Redeemer he came in the fullness of time to take his kingdom, to usher in that glorious kingdom that is not of this world and to fill it with citizens obedient to him, to call them out of every tribe and tongue and nation, to follow him, to submit to him, 
bless thy truth to us. Enable us to understand it, to rejoice in it, and pardon us of all our sins for Christ's sake. Amen.